welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. I am Warren Munson, the host of the podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and experts from a variety of sectors are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. In line with Evolve's principles, we also look at the importance of personal development, accountability and collaborative support in the pursuit of meaningful success. Through the insights of our guests, as well as my own business journey, the aim is to inspire you, the listener, to become better in life and in business. Welcome to this week's episode of the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Today, I'm fortunate enough to be speaking to Lyndon Stickley, a serial entrepreneur and business owner who, over the past 30 years, has invested in, grown, and eventually sold six companies ranging from software, subsea services, renewable energy, and digital tool technology, to even building a substantial cemetery business in London. Lyndon attributes the core of his success with his ability to develop clearly defined organizational goals and forming highly motivated and trained teams to deliver to them. He describes himself as sector agnostic with a particular speciality in sales and marketing. He has a wealth of knowledge and experience around company growth and investing and currently also mentors several managing directors with the aim of helping their companies realize their unrealized potential. So among other things on this episode, Lyndon explains why talent trumps ideas. I'd sooner have a great team with an average idea than an average team with a great idea. Um, because with a great team, you can do great things. Why, of all his adventures, the cemetery business is the one he's most proud of? He set about on the premise that it's a place for the living, as well as those that have passed. So the whole point is, this is an experience for the living, and it's a place that we wanted people to come back to time and again. Shares his opinion on that elusive thing called purpose. Purpose is not a badge, it's not a marketing strapline, it's not something that you think is going to sit well with customers. Purpose is either real or it isn't. If you want to know more about the services offered by Evolve, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. But for now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Lyndon, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Hi there, how are you doing? Yeah, well, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, so as an individual that's built seven businesses over the last 30 years, sold six of them, um, what have you learned about the common factors that stand in the way of smaller, owner-managed, entrepreneurial businesses achieving their full potential? Because you've obviously got a history of achieving potential with those businesses. Um, uh, yeah, I'd say there are common themes and I've had a, an unusual journey in the fact that I've not stayed in one discipline in terms of industry-wise. Yeah. So um, the business that I've been involved with have ranged from communications to renewable energy to oil to a cemetery that no doubt we'll talk about later. That's quite a wide and varied, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, um, but actually there are very common traits through all the businesses. And without a doubt, when you look down and also look back on those businesses and you you consider the things that are um, common themes with all of them and, and common issues on the growth or, or just challenges that they face in general, I'd say one of the biggest things is clarity. Um, I've spent... 30 years really trying to find the signal from the noise in many businesses that I've worked okay. with and less so when you start out because if you're in a small business you're very focused you're sort of like a guerrilla team of 
um, you know, uh, gung ho enthusiasts, and you really focus on one thing. Mm. But then, as it gets b- uh, bigger, and as you recruit and build a management team and, and add staff and and responsibilities to the core job that you were originally doing, I would say that then clarity becomes a really big issue, and yeah. or lack of clarity. And so, I would say focus and clarity on what you're trying to do, remembering where that signal is, because people get busy being busy in all yeah. businesses. Again, after year two, year three, year four, yeah. uh, business as usual, I think, is often quite a threat yeah. because uh, it becomes just you do this because it's what you do. Um, and I think that the uh, the key, that, I mean, without a doubt, if I were to look back and think what's the key theme and the key challenge, I'd say talent is the most um, prevalent issue with all businesses. Um, true talents are rarity um, and also getting talent together that gels. So actually getting teams and teams that work. Yeah. And if I look back on, um, I say I've been involved in seven meaningful businesses and a little bit more than that, but um, of the ones that we've sold that went bigger, uh, without a doubt, the teams uh, gelled more coherently. The focus was greater. The clarity was there. Um, and so I, I would just say that that would be um, the, the, the fundamental, a foundation piece. Then what I'd also say, I suppose, is that with owner-managed businesses or um, with founding teams, I think one of the other challenges on businesses, common to most of them, is their ability to get beyond that uh, uh, position where they have to delegate and mm. trust and empower and I think um, delegation, trust and empowerment of others beyond the original team is a really difficult um, chasm to cross. Yeah. Uh, and those that do cross it successfully can then, uh, you know, multiply their businesses significantly. Uh, whereas those that don't cross it tend to then be benevolent dictators or tyrants, yeah. depending on how they run their business. But yeah. it tends to be the owner founding team and minions. And they hit that ceiling, don't they? They exactly. just hit a ceiling where they can't burst through because they're not letting go, they're not delegating, they're not building teams. I mean, there's some big, some great initial principles there. Um, but part of that, that well, very start of that response, you talked what I'd call it the entrepreneurial business journey, which, and, and I talk about it as startup, then that intuitive growth, because things are going well, you're doing things because it's in your gut, you're building a team. And if you're not careful, it just turns into frantic success. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's reflective in what you're saying. And as a lot of businesses get stuck in that frantic success part because they don't know how to build a team, to delegate, yep. to let go, to put the systems in. And often they've never been trained to do that and they've got no. no experience in doing it. The, the, the very innovators that breathe life into these opportunities are often the ones that haven't got the experience because yeah. they haven't done it before in other companies. And so they substitute the experience fit with energy um, which is great because you get out of the gates and, and you, you, know, you work super hard and you've got the enthusiasm and it rubs off. Um, but I've come across many businesses, not just in the ones I've, I've built myself, but others I've helped as well, where they do get stuck in a place where, you know, 30, 40, 50 people and they've got responsibilities, they've got profits flowing, they've got a level of structure. But actually, it's sort of at that point, it, it's you've got to make the decisions to build you know, a yeah. professional business. You've got to make the decisions to have a proper management team and good practice and, yeah. and trust others. Um, other, otherwise, it is just, a, although not necessarily inappropriate for some, but it is just a business run by the owner. Um, but for some, that's fine. It, yeah. it depends what their aspirations are. Definitely. You've got to align what they want, their desires, their needs with where the business is. So in many of those businesses you've come up, involved with have they been startups or have you come in and helped as you call it the innovator make something of the business what's typically Uh, been the scenario uh for me i've always been the assistance to the innovator okay Um, i'm not the innovator um i think that uh 
I think um, you know the ideas are plentiful, yeah. um, and ideas are cheap. Often, it's actually the right idea at the right time with the right team. Yeah. Um, I think you know. I think most people will agree, but certainly I'm an advocate. I'd sooner have a great team with an average idea than an average team with a great idea, yeah. um, because with a great team you can do great things. Um, but in all the business I've been involved, typically the, the smallest I've got involved with was about five or six people, which we grew to 120 staff. Um, and also another one where we were a founding team of about eight people and uh, we grew to about 450 staff. Um, but always I am the assistance effectively, whether that's financially um, or whether it's strategically and, and certainly from a sales and marketing sort of go to market mm. strategy perspective. Uh, supporting the ideas guy or the ideas team let's say yeah. um, which is why I've been able to um, cross uh, so many industries because okay. uh, I, I either find innovators or innovators find me um, and we'll find them you know sometimes it's just, it is a startup and they on two or three occasions it's been pure startup five or six staff and they, they really need help in my you know in my specialism um, other times it's been a business that's 20 or 30 people trading for a few years, had that frantic success that you mentioned, um, got to a level of operational capability, but then enters into the trouble of like, what next? And yeah. then, you know, usually an event happens, they panic, it, you know, they need finance or they need skills and, and what are they, where do they go from there? Yeah. Um, so yeah, on all the business I've been involved with, all, all seven that I've been heavily involved with, it's always been me adding value to someone else's idea. Yeah, definitely. Does that ever bring conflict with it? Because you're bringing, somebody's got the innovator, it's been their baby, it's, they've started the business, they've, they've got to the point probably with a now and with a need, and you come in yeah. and to create the business and to drive it forward, you make change happen. Yeah. Does that create conflict? Um, I wouldn't say it's conflict because I work with people that have very different skill sets to me yeah. and they realize very quickly that I know what I'm doing in, yeah. in the area and, and have done for a long time. Um, I think it creates anxiety. Yeah. Uh, it's not conflict because they don't say, no, this is not what we're going to do and we don't agree with you. It's anxiety like, well, but what if that doesn't work? Or yeah. this how is do we do that? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, so, and I encourage people to stretch, really, and take yeah. a leap of faith or uh, trust others and so on. And, and also, it's about eating the elephant in digestible chunks. So it's yeah. not a question if you come in with, into someone's business and they've got 30 or 40 staff and you suddenly upend it and change everything overnight. It's actually, again, it's about noise to signal. So what you do is you come into a business and, and you get involved. And as I say, I've been involved where I've got involved in a business, buying into it and then adding value and talent at the same time with a team. And what we'll do is we'll identify the primary areas of concern immediately the proper signal issues um and often they're not the ones that are considered to be the issues yeah. because someone who's in the middle of that fire is fighting that fire and, and can't see what we see coming from the outside yeah, can't see the woods for the trees as to where they are exactly so on your journey of those you know seven plus kind of businesses that you've worked with and and had success with is there one standout kind of journey that you're really proud of uh yes yeah, there's, there's a few standout journeys, but for one, for being proud of, I would say, um, yeah, there's one that was very different. Um, and that would be the cemetery. Okay. Which is, um, and I didn't expect that going it's into It's a unique it. sector, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, what, what actually happened was we'd, I got into the cemetery not that long ago. It was about 2011 um, that that opportunity came about. And uh, there was an existing business in place that spent nine years getting planning for a... Um, 
30,000 plot, 55 acre cemetery in uh, southeast London. And um, so a lot of the graft had been done with regard to making the opportunity possible, but they were running out of steam, running out of funds, didn't have really the talent to take it forward. And we got approached having um, built the oil business to quite a significant size and that had been sold. And we got approached to uh, see if this would be an opportunity that we'd be interested in. And um, to start with, it was um, effectively, I was just uh, on the periphery. I was an investor and I was a, um, a helping hand, uh, yeah. non-exec style. Um, but actually, I found myself running the show for a couple of years, um, not long after that, for a number of unforeseen uh, reasons that occurred. Um, but the bottom line was we, we um, built a spur off of the A20 um, uh, going into uh, the Sidcup bypass going past Chislehurst. And we built a spur off of that into a 55-acre site, um, cleared 3,000 trees, uh, put the roads in, built a massive chapel, and we built something that was like no other cemetery in the UK. And what was interesting about that was, and I think maybe pertinent as well to the time of life, um, and that was in 2010, I'd um, uh, cremated my dad. And actually... Um, having the experience firsthand of just how awful cremations or burials are in mm. terms of it's a it's a sort of a conveyor belt and you know you rock up at the crematorium whether it's Bournemouth or anywhere else but you rock up at the crematorium and you're not sure if that crowd's yours or if it's the one that's just come out or is yeah. that the one you're joining you've got a half an hour slot um, I um, I wanted to do a eulogy for my dad that was at least half an hour and I was told no you can't have that much time because there's only a half an hour for the whole service we need you to keep it down to about 14 minutes yeah. if you can and so on and that had all happened um, and obviously that was maybe in my mind but what we set out to build with uh, the cemetery that we built was something that was far more akin to a Four Seasons hotel experience rather than a municipal yeah. um, um, burial ground and so um, we set about building a brand and a proposition and delivering on something that was entirely transformational. And I wouldn't say unique. And, and actually mentioning earlier about the fact of I, I tend to work with the innovator. I was involved quite a lot with the innovation of this one in particular, but it wasn't unique because it's very much like an American model. American cemeteries and the, and the service you get are very much like that. But we uh, created effectively what we termed a park. It wasn't a cemetery. We called, right. it, we called it Kemnal Park. Um, and after a lot of soul searching about what we wanted to achieve and why and how, we actually set about on the premise that it's a place for the living as well as those that have passed. So the whole point is this is an experience for the living and it's a place that we wanted people to come back to time and again. And we wanted to um, recognise the celebration in someone's life and the ability to... Um, feel proud of what you've done with yeah. that service. And so, you know, and, and everyone wants to, um, you know, have a good send off and do their dad yeah. proud and so on. Um, but we delivered in ways that a cemetery wouldn't normally think about or deliver. So, for instance, the moment you term it a park, um, you start to think about the fact, well, we'll put swings on the trees and we'll have bluebell walks in the forest and yeah. we'll we'll have a play area for the kids and we've got a stream. And and so it became a proper park where yeah. you could then bury your loved ones and we could sell private gardens that would mean that actually you could forward plan and say, well, I'm going to have this for my downstream. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we built something of which I was very proud. Um, Rightfully so. Uh, very successful. And although... Um, you know, really sobering to see some of the services that we conducted. I never got involved hands-on, yeah. that wasn't, but I was there sometimes when services happened. Um, but we we uh, were more empathic and more sensitive and more 
capable of delivering something that someone would be proud of than I think any other cemetery in the country. Um, and so to see people with the numerous thank you letters we got afterwards and the fact that they didn't expect it to be like this. And, and I never forget there was a, a couple that came in and um, they were visiting after um, putting mum in the ground, I think it was. And uh, um, our team would always get out the biscuits and put the kettle on. And it was a completely different experience than the, than the mm. faceless type of cemetery. And we knew customers by name and so on. It was it was like a hotel. And uh, I remember getting introduced to this couple because they were like, oh, one of our bosses is here. Come and have a chat with him. And, uh, he, you know, he'd like to meet you. And so I just had a sort of firsthand chat. And they said that um, this couple, they said, uh, we buried one of our parents uh, seven years ago down the road in, in one of the municipal cemeteries. And they said, we've never been back. They said, we don't like to think about going back. We don't feel mm. good about the place. It, it fills us with dread. You know, it was a very sad day. And, and, and you know, we remember, we remember them in different ways. They said, but we're back here every week. We come back every week here because we like being here. Yeah. And I think that, in its alone that in itself just you know there was a sort of a an yeah. all over tingling sensation of like Mindfully wow so. that's you know that's that's delivering something you know and i've spent my whole life delivering products or services but actually delivering that was something quite different and do you think that's because it had true meaning that's exactly right it had it had a a, a meaning that was deeper and further reaching than than any many of the yeah. other things I say any of the things I think pretty much any of the other things I've done I mean I've spent time in renewable energy that's got purpose and yeah. and we built a big business there um, but yeah I mean when you connect to a family you you, you make a big difference it's interesting isn't it because we're sat in your wonderful house in the new forest and you know you've created lots of wealth through those opportunities and it, I would have imagined that you would have said you know your response would have been the biggest exit out of them all or but you haven't yeah. you've said something of meaning and yeah and purpose which i think is a you know it's an admiration for you as a character Linda. well i think if people had gone through it uh I, i'm not sure I, I don't know maybe it is maybe it isn't i think if people had gone through that and experienced it i think they just get perspective i mean people get perspective by being exposed to different things and and so you know i, I remember for instance and probably the most uh, vivid memory of that journey and as I say, I'm very proud of it and we had an exciting time building what we built we were the first live streaming um, burial right. service in, in the yeah. country which you know again that's like a little tech part of me going oh we did that and people were like who wants to live stream a service but actually suddenly in the last 12 months, months everybody yeah, but, but also at the time we were live streaming services because um, granny was in New Zealand and she yeah. couldn't make the funeral and so um, and uh, so we had lots of tech there as well, which was great. But the, the thing, the most vivid thing of all was actually a, um, a fairly young father and his two little children uh, that were burying um, the mum who died in childbirth with the child. And when you experience that, and again, I wasn't part of it, but I was there when that happened. And when you experience it, you just suddenly, a lot of perspective comes about and a lot of things that you think are problems and a lot of, yeah. lot of issues in business in general. And, and that you realize they just don't make a blind bit of difference. They're just not important. And then you realize that that's really important. You know, there's not that many things that really hit home. Yeah. But when you see a lot of death, um, uh, and when you see that happening repeatedly, it's, it opens your eyes. So do you think that experience changed you as a human being? Um, I don't know. Did it change me? Um, I suppose I didn't jump into the next business after that one immediately. Uh, I took some time off and 
did I attribute it directly to that? I, I don't know. I think it broadened my perspective. It made me maybe more empathic. Mm. Um, I used to joke that I didn't have empathy, but uh, I probably do these days. Yeah. I just hid it for the early years <laughs> because it suited me. Um, I think it, um, yeah, I think it's just part of experience and wisdom and age yeah. in, in general. <laughs> so I, I suppose the question would be this. If, if I'd had that cemetery experience in my 20s, instead of traveling the world selling comms and, and building up a, um, a data transfer business, if I'd had that cemetery experience then, would I have had a different path? I'm not sure. I don't think I'd have been ready to receive it then. And I no. think actually, I think I probably wouldn't have spoken to a customer. I wouldn't have seen a service and I would have just focused on the yeah. P&L. The, um, the business model, the, the numbers. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And- Whereas I suppose I was ready to receive it at the time and in, in time of life and, and having done a few tech journeys along the way. Um, but yeah, that would be the one I'm most proud of. Um, and it is nowhere near the biggest. It was no. big, but it was nowhere near the biggest. Um, uh, and I, I suppose one other journey that would stand out would be um, my first company that we built quite big. I mentioned we went from about five, six staff when I got involved to 120. We went from Bournemouth to seven offices and 30 countries. And we went from no customers to 55,000 customers. Yeah. Um, that was exciting. Uh, it was very fast paced. We were, you know, um, building very quickly and traveling constantly. Um, and that's, you know, a vivid memory. And the, and the, I suppose it was the, the permission to play in all the other games. It was yeah. the permission. It was the start point. Um, but would I want to do that again now? No, I wouldn't want to do yeah. it again now. It was, it's a time and a place. But it's interesting because that journey took you to America, didn't it? And it you, did. you based yourself out in America for a year or two? Three. Or three years, yeah. was it? So based yourself out in America for three years. What did you learn about the way in which... Americans do business compared to how we do business in the UK and did you bring any of those lessons back with you uh, I hope not um, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of difference maybe I did um, it's very different and uh, I would say one of the things that um, we used to joke about is in the UK the UK culture and uh, sort of general pragmatic UK business is um, aim 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 fire and in the, the American way is fire, aim, 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 aim. And uh, it was very much can do, go, go, go. You know, um, everything's reached for yeah. the moon effectively. Um, and there's some great upsides with that because of possibility. Yeah. Uh, and if you are in the right place in the right time, you know, getting funding, getting building teams quickly, throwing people at things and, you know, building 50, 100 people, you know, in a short space of time. It's very possible, much more possible than here, I think. Um, so uh, there's definitely the, the proactivity, the West Coast mentality. And that was a tech business I was out in America with. Um, and so, yes, that was a positive. But I'd say on the downside of that, I'd say there's a huge amount of wastage and just wreckage from the, those that do succeed. Mm. So you can grow things really quickly and you can throw a lot of money at it and raise the funds and so on. And, you know, everyone celebrates the successes. But what you don't see, like with pop stars, is, you know, for the one pop star that you celebrate the success and all the hard work, you know, you don't see the 10,000 that didn't make no, it. Fall by the wayside. Um, exactly. Yeah. So with all of that success, where do you fit on the kind of scale that actually success can, is all about drive and focus and passion and belief or that there has to be an element of luck in there as well? Where do you fit with that one, Lyndon? That's an interesting question. Um, I think without a doubt, um, success rarely falls in your lap and uh, delivers everything you need. 
um, unless you're a lottery winner, which I think is another conversation. And I don't, <laughs> and I don't think that's successful. I think that ruins more people than it, than it makes happy. Um, so I would say, uh, without a doubt, the drive to succeed, the hard work. I mean, hard work is an absolute core element of anything that uh, you do if you want results, whether that's personal or professional. I think a lot of work's required to get um, you know, good results or to get places. Um, but it's interesting because if you'd asked me in my 20s and 30s, probably, I'd come out with the usual cliches, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. You know, I make my own luck. Um, and, and I think there's an element of that. I think there's a, uh, you know, I've talked with some colleagues in the past of the buses of opportunity that come along and they're always coming along and it's a question of whether you get on them or not. Um, so I would have argued historically that no, you do make your own luck and it's, it's not about luck. Um, but actually I'd say, I don't agree with that at all anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. I don't agree with that at all. And I think that you can get places with hard work and graft. Um, but for a number of the exceptional achievements that people, um, uh, you know, talk about or, you know, people are seen to do, I think there's large doses of luck in, in many, many places that people take for granted. And then they like to appropriate it and decide that no, that wasn't luck. That was me. <laughs> and so um, and so, you know, as an example, I mean, just take the first business. As I say, we we had an extraordinary journey in my 20s and I would have argued that that was down to me and it was down to all my graft. But the fact that I got introduced to five technical guys that had a problem, um, well, that was luck. Wow. I wasn't looking for them. In fact, I didn't even want any jo a job at the time. I was actually um, buried in the nightclub business that I'd had running in Portsmouth. And I'd had several clubs on the go and I worked on that through university and post-graduation. I'd kept that going. And I remember uh, an old friend of mine approaching me two or three times over six months saying, look, there's this opportunity. We'd like your help. And I'm like, I'm busy. Yeah. I'm having fun. I'm enjoying I'm, my life. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to get involved I, in the tech I'm, business. Ma I'm making money and I, I get up at midday every day and I go to bed at four in the morning. And so, you know, that was and, it, and so the introduction in itself was luck um, or coincidence, let's yeah. say. Um, but then the fact that the tech that they were playing with had relevance to the business that I'd been in with nightclubs, with graphic design and flyer production and delivery of content to printers and the ability for me to then join, join the dots with the tech that they were building and, and this problem it could solve that they actually hadn't even been aware of. Um, again, that's blind luck. And so, but then from there, then what you've got is you've got a load of hard work. And I think in seven years, I probably had a couple of weeks holiday in, in that first run of things. And, and uh, you know, a, a lot of talent for the teams we built and a, and a lot of skill that people, various people brought to the table and, um, you know, and, and luck in finding those resources yeah. and gelling. But again, if I go to time and again through some of the um, businesses that we've uh, built um, successfully, there's always been quite an element of luck. And I suppose if you go a bit more philosophically as well, um, when you talk to successful people and how much luck has been involved, yeah. I think most of them would forget the fact of actually their luck of uh, wh who they are, where they were born, what parents they had or didn't have, what the focus was and what their journey was. Yeah. And so, and I think um, Malcolm Gladwell makes quite a good point of in, I think it's um, 
Is it outliers? Malcolm Gladwell was, makes a point of a lot of people talk about uh, their success despite their origin or despite their journey or, you know, and so on. And actually, it's not when you track that back and you look at it, it's because of it's not despite. It's actually those were the contributing factors that caused them to be where they were at the time. Yeah to be in the right place at the right time, to then capitalise on that luck with hard work. And sometimes it's what then gives them the drive, doesn't it? Absolutely. It gives them the passion and the drive. And, you know, yeah. the fact that perhaps the start in life hasn't been ideal or perfect gives people a desire yep. to achieve something better and to reach further. Exactly. And also time. Timing yeah. of when, when you're born, what's happening in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, our generation um, had uh, or will have, I think, a lot more luck than... Uh, a number of those, you know, in the next generations, I think, because of the ch- changing markets and what's happening. And the generation before us had, I think, greater luck than we did. So you're coming back to some of your opening remarks. Um, you're really passionate about organisational purpose, you know, and it came through again in that, that, that opening response. And, you know, that every business owner should have this sense of purpose. But how does a new business owner or somebody that's on their journey and they're feeling a bit lost, you know, and I think that happens quite a lot. You get into this valley of despair. You start a business with this true sense of belief and focus and passion and purpose. And somewhere along the line, it gets lost. So how does somebody that's in that place that needs to ensure they are properly defining purpose go about doing that, Linda? Well, I'd say you're right. I'm passionate about purpose, um, but I wouldn't say every business owner should have a purpose and they should be operating from that purpose. I'd say if you can operate from the purpose, um, it's a great place to be. Um, Someone once said to me, um, where there is choice, there is confusion. And I struggled with that to start with because, you know, I, I used to spend you know many years thinking I want to create choice and everything I do, I want to create choice and choice is a great thing. And um, and I argued it a little bit, but actually the reality is this, which is when there is choice, that means you could do one thing or another and therefore you don't know what to do. And and I was having this conversation with someone the other day when they were talking about their organization and what the purpose is and does it fit or not. And, and one thing that is really important is purpose is not a badge. It's not a marketing strap line. It's not something that you think is going to sit well mm. with customers. Purpose is either real or it isn't. And I was having this conversation with the management team in a business that were debating on whether this was a badge or whether it was real meaning. And I, I said to one of the guys, I said, um, think of your friend. I said, think of a really good friend. Um, and uh, you get a call from his wife and he's really ill and he needs your kidney. Um, I said, that's probably going to be, you know, quite a, a, a jolt to you. And you're going to then really have, have some serious soul searching to do. I said, what would you think? And he said, well, yeah, that would be difficult. I said, your best friend, you know, you could possibly save his life. Um, but, you know, do you do you give him your kidney or don't you? What if it goes wrong? What if it doesn't work? What if you need that kidney down the line? Um, you know, it's a tough call, isn't it? And he was like, yeah, it is a tough call. I said, so you've got choice. So there's confusion. And I said, what if it was your child? Your child needs your kidney. He said, well, I'd just give it. Yeah. And I was like, there you go. So there you go. Then that's when you know you've got purpose because that's not a question. That's not a tough call. That's not a lot. What if it doesn't work? Right. The, you know, what if I need my kidney down the road? It's like, I'll throw everything at this. And actually he did say to me, I said, I'll give him a second kidney if I need yeah. it. And so therein lies where choice, uh, where purpose sits, which is where you don't have choice when this is what you believe it's from how you operate. And I think one of my favorite, um, sort of stories of purpose it's really i would say anita roddick with the body shop yeah and it was around the fact that the whole premise was it's not it's, it's cosmetics shouldn't be cruel and therefore 
there was no choice when it came to that. That was the premise that she was going to build from. And therefore, every decision that she would make would make sure it feeds that purpose. Cosmetics won't be cruel. And so if, if a supplier had come to her and said, I can actually provide you with way cheaper supply of, a, of an element of, you know, of your lip balm, um, but it's got a little bit of gelatin in it. it, might have a little bit of pig in it. It's like, that's not a choice. It's like, it doesn't matter. It, you know, I'm not improving my profits, but compromising my purpose. Yeah. And so if you can operate from purpose... Uh, that's a great place to be like the cemetery um we operate from a place of purpose death shouldn't be all about Absolutely. dying yeah. um and therefore decisions were made that would we do things quite differently so there would never be a half an hour slot um because that's too tight who wants a half an hour slot when they've got to respect a loved one yeah. so so it's going to be an hour minimum but if you want to book more you can book more you could book the day if you want um it's all about flexibility for for mm. what they need and we would be delivering from a place of real um assured sort of values shall we say um and so and then in other businesses there are there are definitely there is there is a purpose you know there can be a purpose and you can evolve it um but sometimes not sometimes the business you know comes about you start a business you're made redundant you start a business you make money you've got you end up with 10 staff and and you're running mm. would i in would i sort of impose upon that type of business you need a purpose and you need to be focused on it. no i wouldn't because some businesses are ticking over and they're making money i think the businesses that want to do extraordinary things and want to grow and scale I think those are the ones you really look to the origin story and their reason for being because, um, you know, people say like your vibe determines your tribe. And it actually it's uh, what you believe is, uh, you know, it affects everything. It affects the customers you attract. It affects the people you recruit. And so if you've got a strong belief system and if there's something that you're passionate about and you can convey that, that helps you find the right type of clients and the right type of staff. And then that brings together a team of people that are far more coherent and far more focused. So purpose is great. And, and, and if you've got one, that's great. Or if you can, if you can identify what your true cause is. And this company I just mentioned earlier about the guy with the kidney, um, they went around the houses struggling with it and, and, and weren't really grasping the fact it's not marketing. It's not marketing. Mm. And, and then when we ended up with a heated discussion, and then the founder would say, well, this is, this is just what I do. This is what I do. And this is how I do it. And this is why I started. And I'll go, there you go. That's, why haven't we had that conversation? Yeah. And out of that little rant came an origin story of what he's really passionate about. And out of that came, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's the purpose. That's why you do this. And that's why customers buy from you. And that's why you're passionate about what you do. And so from that, it can evolve. Yeah. So, yes, I think purpose is important, but I don't think it's an essential ingredient for businesses. I think it's a, it's a great one. Um, and I also think there's a lot of large businesses that have ridiculous purpose statements. And uh, I don't want to enter into any grounds of uh, liability or yeah. defamation. <laughs> but, you know, you can look at some German car manufacturers and, yeah. and what their purpose statements have been compared to their performance with manipulation on emissions figures, for instance. Yeah. Um, or you could look at cereal providers, cereal manufacturers. And the idea that their purpose is to like provide nutrition for children every day or something. And you look at the amount of sugar in their <laughs> yeah. content. So again, uh, but that's marketing. But it is marketing, isn't it? But it all comes back to, I, I say the same quite often with that, with vision, mission and values. You know, I think that's a tainted subject as well because of the way where some big businesses, they put their vision, mission, values on a piece of paper. They stick it to a meeting room wall, at wall and they think that's it. Everybody's going to behave like that. And it's yeah. not. It's the culture is... Inept in the in the business by the way it's led and yep. managed. Yeah, you yep. can't put words in a wall. It's it's how you behave. It's the nature of what you do. And that's about how you recruit. And if you've got a reason to recruit people that believe what you believe. Yeah. 
I once heard a phrase which I, I really liked and it was uh, the culture of a company is a little bit like um, it's what it's what the people do when no one's watching. Yeah. And so it's, it's like the kids in a classroom when the teacher's gone. Yeah. And I think the culture of a school, I think, is very identifiable for what how the kids act when the teacher's there or when the, kid, the teacher's not there. Uh, and that's, I think, similar with staff and yeah. with businesses in general. It's a great example of that, isn't it? And in terms of, you've talked also about team and building team. How do you go about building a big team? Or have you always created this team around you? And have you had a team with you that followed you? Or, you know, how do you go about, you know, if again, you're this business owner, you realise you're ready to let go, you need to create a better team around you. Um, you know, that old adage of, you know, recruit people that are better than you. Absolutely. These are all things are easily said yeah but not so easily always done so any yep. tips on creating a great team um I, i've been involved with a great team for a number of years and without a doubt there's there's sort of six or seven of us but we're not always the whole team on each company so there might be two or three of us in one venture and two or three different mm. ones in another and on the bigger ones maybe there's five or six of us um i'm a great believer in um having uh, deep and trusting relationships with people that you know you can rely on. I think there's no substitute for being able to have um, uh, resources you know to work with, where you know they say they're going to get something done and they get it done. You know they get it done with skill and they get it done with uh, diligence as well. Um, but there's no silver bullet. You can't come into a business and go, oh, I've got a ready-made team for you. Just bring me in and I'll bring my five guys and we'll fix it overnight yeah. because it's never really like that. I think you, uh, you know, you build teams like you build a football team. You've got to build them one at a time. You've got to look at what you've got. You've got to look at what you need. You've got to look at your culture and you've got to look at what, what the fit would be because one, if I, one thing I'd say when I look back over the years um, with recruitment and with key, key hires and key positions, I'd probably say I've made the most failings in my career of hiring people. And I've hired a few hundred staff over in my time. I'd say my, uh, my prevalence of failure in recruitment is in the most senior people. Because the most senior people are often the ones that can blag the interviews well. Yeah. Um, you know, you've no idea whether yeah. they're going to be a big success or not until six months, nine months later. Um, and you are hoping that they're bringing more to the table than you've got already and so on. And so it's a very difficult thing to do. But that's precisely where this area of risk is, isn't it? For the owner manager. Yeah. Because actually they, they can nurture the junior team but, and the people around them, their ops, you know, yeah. their day to day. But they need to bring some senior people in. Absolutely. To make the difference, to scale the business, to achieve the growth, to be able to let go. And inevitably, that's a, you've alluded to it there. It's a really hard process, particularly with senior people. Yeah. And you and use the you, word, though, nurture. You say yeah. they, they can nurture their junior people. I think they can dominate and overwhelm and, and control their junior <laughs> people. Actually, got a different perspective right? online. And so, and, and uh, you know, nurture is a nice way of saying it. But actually, what you find with a lot of owner-managed businesses yeah. is, is, you know, they're not setting out to be a tyrant, but they know what they want. They know what they've got to get achieved. They've recruited a bunch of people that aren't smarter than them. And they want these people to help them achieve their mission. Yeah. And therefore, and they do. But you're right. They've got to get people that have got more experience and got more skills that can come to the table that can say, no, I've done this before. Yeah. And I'd say there's no substitute for that. Certainly, if you want to build quickly, there's no substitute for bringing in people that have done it before. But it is a high area of failure if you bring people in too senior. And that's also, a, you know, I mean, most businesses will recognize this. You bring someone in too senior too quickly, they haven't got enough to do. They need too many people around them to function. Mm. So it's finding someone who's done it before, on the up, still got the energy, uh, wants to be hands on um, uh, and, and will perform. 
Uh, and again, talent's rare. That's the point. Real talent is rare. And then talent that gels with your team and, and you can build together, even more rare. Yeah. So be prepared. So great advice there, but be prepared to make a few mistakes, live with the mistakes and try again if you get it wrong. No question. I, I would say on my senior, uh, senior appointments of people that I didn't know, I would say it's a 50-50, even with headhunters. Yeah. even with headhunters and so on. And and therefore, most of my senior positions have been through industry contacts, uh, people that are performing in other roles that you've seen them perform, uh, where you've identified, actually, that that person's a winner. I want them on my team yeah. um, because that's that's the way to do it. You know, you, you've identified without them being in an interview scenario, without them recognizing that your eyes are on them, you can see them as a winner. You can see their track record in the industry. You can see them doing something within an industry or, or they come highly referred. Yeah. Um, because without that, uh, you know, without the recommendation, uh, if you're just recruiting from a normal interview process, my first question now with anyone very senior, if you want to bring in people senior, is like, why are you looking for a job? Mm. Because in fact, uh, you know, and it, it is a tough call, I suppose, but I would say virtually all of the senior, very capable people I know, they're never looking for a job. Yeah. It's always opportunities, find them, but they're never really looking. And that's tough because, um, you know, for the, there will be some capable people out there that are looking for a job, particularly in these times. Um, but they'll hopefully be the 50% that work rather than the 50 that don't. And, and I suppose it is interesting because I'm just, as you're talking, I'm reflecting on what I've done and I've brought senior people in before and, and it's been a disaster and the team look at you and go, well, why did you do that? Yeah. But I suppose I've always had a slower growth story in my own world because I've always tried to grow my own development people bring that person in that's a bit younger hungrier spend some time with them develop them which is great which is but great it if takes you can time it takes it? time exactly you trade you trade the time the speed factor for with risk for yeah exactly and so and it depends what you're trying to do and it depends on your window of opportunity so yeah. for instance in your business uh, the the opportunity for your business is fairly robust and consistent and yeah. it's always there and you'll evolve but the, the bottom line is it's always going to be uh, a need for you know 50 yeah. guys doing what you do let's say um, in some businesses, it's about a time and a place and an opportunity. And so, as soon as that's gone. Exactly. So right gone. now, for instance, and one of the things I'm working on right now, there's a there's an opportunity in the cloud space where there's a lot of migration from legacy systems into cloud. Uh, but in five years' time, that won't be there. And therefore, if we went steady as she goes for the next 10 years, we wouldn't get anywhere near the no. same um, land grab of, of market share yeah. as we would as if we uh, go faster. And you go faster by buying in talent that's done it before. Yeah. You've also been on this journey yourself as an individual. You've evolved and developed yourself. And I know there is a period where actually it may have been as you came out of the cemetery kind of business that you talked about earlier. You went and did some traveling. You went sort of to South America. You went around the world a little bit and you went on a bit of discovery and, and what you've called a period of mindfulness. So describe that to us and, and how's that changed you as an individual? Okay, I wouldn't call it a period of mindfulness, actually. I didn't, I would call it a period of, um, at the time, I wrote about mindfulness afterwards in my article. Um, Maybe that's in, where I picked yeah, it up. From yeah, in Decision Magazine, I wrote about mindfulness and awareness. Um, what would I have called it? I would have called it a crash and burn year where I felt like I didn't care anymore and I just just lost the appetite for doing what I'd done, I'd been doing for so long. And so, is that burnout? No, it absolutely wasn't burnout. It was nothing. I've I've never burned out. It's not, and I, and I wouldn't say I've, I, you know, other than maybe in the first ten or fifteen years, I wouldn't say I've ever. I couldn't justify burning out. I haven't worked hard enough to do that. Um, post that first <laughs> decade, in the first decade, I worked like a nutcase. But after that, you know, 
after that, I've been quite balanced with time off and so on. Um, but what I would say is I ended a long relationship, um, which had been, you know, taken up more than the last decade of my life. And uh, that came to an end. Um, I got out, I sold the cemetery. So that was uh, concluded that. And I sort of felt like, what next? And I would say that at that point, I'd built and sold six businesses. And I just didn't feel as though I just wanted to just go and do another one. It felt like, what's the point? Um, I think home life is a really big uh, influence on on some people, certainly on me. Home life is a really big influence, and certainly in later years as well, as to giving me meaning for doing things and giving me purpose. And so if you you know end up with a, a relationship that ends and and then you look at it and think yeah what am i doing this for it's like i don't yeah. need any more toys i don't need i don't need to the accolade anymore i don't need to prove to myself i can do this so what is the point what am i doing it for so i went off on a um i went off on some travels to see some people actually it wasn't um it was to connect with an old friend out of the us that found himself in brazil and it was to connect with another old friend in in australia um and do a bit of soul searching and um just do what i thought to start with was reflection um but then actually i suppose on my year or two out when i um uh you know i look back now i feel like i was skiving because again i've got this work ethic in me that feels like because <laughs> i should be working bread yeah exactly you it just feels off. like i yeah. should be working even if i don't need to work it's not it just feels like yeah that was a strange time but what i learned is um I've spent my whole uh, adult life and certainly even later teenage, earlier teenage years as well, um, projecting. The whole time it's forecasting. It's always like what's yeah. going to happen in the future. It's all about control. It's all about um, millionaire by 30 or, you know, whatever it's going to be, at whatever stage of life or the next big business I'm going to build or the next big disposal. And I'd lived a life like that until probably about 48, I would say. So I don't know whether I'm a late bloomer or not, but... I just constantly lived with a forecast of what's going to happen. And, and I've mentored a lot of people on goal setting and resolution setting, personal and professional, and structuring resolutions in a way that you can achieve great things. And it's all about, you know, you, you put your goals out there, you categorize, you look at what, where you want to achieve things, you apply a load of hard work, and you can achieve great things. And those things are all true. Like if you want to be an athlete, you have to decide that, you know, you've got to be dedicated. There's no question. You want to achieve extraordinary things, you've got to be dedicated. But I suppose at 48, having achieved quite a few extraordinary things in business, I started to think about what about happiness? <laughs> what about contentedness? What about, uh, you know, is this working out for me? Um, and uh, and I, I remember seeing this meme that was, uh, you know, just this poster that sort of said something like, well, that didn't turn out as I expected. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, that's about right for life. And so I started having very different conversations with certain people I knew that I knew could tap into that type of conversation. Some wouldn't get it and mm. others would think I'm, you know, I'm falling off the wagon. He's, going, he's having and, a breakdown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and actually, I just started thinking like, you know, what, what am I doing? What's it all about? And I started realizing that actually um, most people, nearly everyone, in fact, they live in projection or reflection. They live, they live in thought mm. and thought is all about, uh, you know, forward thinking or, or um, nostalgic backwards thinking and, and reflecting on stuff. And, and with forward thinking with a lot of people often brings anxiety and fear. Yeah. With backwards thinking, it brings regret um, because, uh, you know, you're one way or the other. But the bottom line is our minds are programmed to cause us worry because that's sort of how we survived as a, as a species and how we've got to where we have got to by anticipating things mm -hmm. and, and being concerned about stuff that could happen.
And I realised that I'd spent no time at all uh, just really, truly turning up and truly being in the present. And, and maybe I have in some areas, you know, with my kids when they were smaller or, or certainly with a couple of hobbies, maybe there were moments when yeah. actually those were the times where you think, yeah, actually, I was really not thinking about anything, really yeah. just experiencing. But in general, most people don't have enough of that at all. And the, you know, the way it was taught to me is those aha moments where we're actually whether it's a romantic sunset or whether you've just seen your child born or whether you've just jumped out of a plane, you get a moment where it's completely about experience. It's only experience and you get an all over body sensation of that experience. And then your mind appropriates that as thought and goes, oh, look, I've just seen that fantastic sunset. Oh, look, I'm jumping out of a plane. But actually the reality was the true experience is beyond thought. The true experience is when you're not thinking about it because thinking can't happen in the now. There is no thinking in the now. It can only happen forward or backwards, even if it's only a split second. And therefore, and I thought to myself, well, that is interesting because actually, uh, in general, most people have anxiety based on, um, you know, projecting or projection or reflection. And when they start to understand that, um, you know, if you actually can let go of that projection or reflection, you can drive contentedness, contentedness up quite considerably, then actually that's something worth pursuing. So, mm. and to start with, it felt a little bit mumbo jumbo to me. And so I thought I'd just talk to my business guys that I knew that were extremely successful, but also had a, a foot in that camp. And so I, I went off and spent a lot of time with them and hung out and explored ideas, discussed business things at the same time. But but basically um, with a view to yeah, maybe I don't have all the answers and maybe I say maybe I don't need to do it again. Maybe maybe there is something else I should be looking at and let's have a ponder. Yeah. And I did. And uh, has it changed me? I think, yeah, it has. But was it the two years that I took out and I and I had those conversations and I explored those things or was it just the fact that I got to the point where I'd had enough anyway needed a break I don't know but I'm now back in the game and and doing things and and building businesses again Um, but I do it I suppose I do it in a far more relaxed fashion now than I've ever done it before yeah Um, and that's relaxed not because I can be because because I could have been before you could have been before exactly created the security before exactly it's actually relaxed now because um it's just all okay. But are you doing it now because you realise you enjoy doing it? You're doing it for the enjoyment and the satisfaction and applying a skill set to help others as well as helping yourself. Do you think there's a different shift because you have come back to it rather than when so many people, you know, me included at times, have been on this conveyor belt where you're just striving for success and you don't quite realise why you're doing it? Uh, well, I agree with that happens, but I think that happened to me a long time ago. So, uh, you know... Before I took the two years out, I um, I was enjoying what I was doing, and I was doing it because I enjoyed it. I was doing the, you know the cemetery yeah. and the and the renewal. You talked about that with passions, yeah, yeah and the, re- the renewal that. renewable energy business as well. It was um, and an agency I was involved with. They were all very enjoyable. Um, so no, I wouldn't say that would be it. I would say uh, understanding the process of being able to get beyond thought, understanding how the facts can be exactly the same, like whatever scenario is is in place, the facts can be exactly the same. And yet the way you think about it can completely transform your level of concern. And yet it doesn't change the facts. And therefore, you know, the old adage, if, if you know, if you're worried about something, do something about it. And yeah. if you can't do anything about it, don't worry. And that sounds a bit flippant, but there is something in that because if you can't do something about it, then actually worry is completely futile. Yeah. Um, in the past, I might have argued, well, no, worry is a good barometer or indicator to action and therefore you need to do things but actually what i'd say is 
you can still do the things that you need to do, but you just do them without the level of worry because you can say, well, here's the scenario. I suppose it's a state of mind and it's a calmness. And what I achieved out of that two years traveling and and uh, learning about something quite challenging and difficult for me, I suppose I did achieve a state of calmness so that now, for instance, we can be involved in a situation in business and have been where we might get quite a significant business challenge. We might get something that's urgent, crisis, angry customer, you name yeah. it, something that's a challenge and, and so on. And I can now greet it with like, okay, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Well, what we need to do is we need to solve it. Um, you know, and what's the worst that can happen? Because mm. no one's going to die. Yeah. And so, you know, worst that can happen, money, usually it's money, isn't it? Customer's angry, wants some money back, won't pay the bill, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And so that, I suppose, has changed me. And that's also changed my approach in the way that I've been coaching some people, although I'm not really a coach. I just people find me to <laughs> get help and it's sort of happened. But I'm not a coach or a mentor. I'm a, I'm a business guy. I do my own thing mostly. But... But in the people I have been coaching, I found myself delivering a lot of tough love, really tough love mm. when they come to me with problems um, that and they're really, you know, they're distraught. And, you know, some like only recently I actually had a managing director of a 600 man business that came to me really panicked and really, you know, off balance and, you know, faltering voice and like, this is a real disaster and, you know, I need some help. I need some perspective. It was like a crisis, an absolute crisis. And I listened to it and I sort of responded with like, how dare you? How dare you um, bring that level of emotion to this conversation when all we're actually really talking about is there might be some, there might be a financial ramification that doesn't remotely um, take your legs away. There's a financial ramification that maybe there'll be some lost profit. There'll be some lost mm. um, excess, but no one's ill. You're not going to die. Um, you're not going to be destitute. You know, your kids will still be in their private schools and you'll still have your, you know, your nice dividend and so on. Um, and I just sort of said, how dare you be that greedy? Because, um, you know, you've got a problem. And, and what response did you get? Well, actually, they were quite shocked because... Um, <laughs> And that, I suppose, I can imagine. That, yeah, they were quite shocked because they were expecting me to just solve the problem. They were expecting me to give them perspective because it was about like which route should we take. And I suppose what I was conveying to them is, yeah, you've got a problem, and it might have a big financial ramification. It had a legal ramification actually, so we had to be delicate with it. But the bottom line is, even a legal ramification in business, mm. it's just money. It's it not can be you know, resolved. Yeah, no one yeah. was going to prison. It was just a you know, it was just a, a customer type scenario. Um, but the bottom line is, I I said, you know. When you encounter real problems, then then bring this level of emotion to the table. You know, when your wife discovers a lump or when your child's been run over, then yeah, then come with that level of emotion and that level of concern and, and panic. Mm -hmm. But this is just business. And therefore, we can have this conversation, but let's take the emotion out of it. Because one is you're just greedy if you're that identified with money that it's going to knock you so off balance that you're coming to me with, you know, emotional distress. And secondly, it won't help your decision making anyway. Okay. Um, it won't be rational. So it's not rational. And so, again, yeah, that's different because I suppose if I'd been giving advice to that guy five years ago, I'd have just got straight into the problem and how we can solve it. Whereas I suppose now I was sort of offended because maybe that maybe that's because I've seen people with real problems as well. And I, I'm, I'm very lucky I haven't had that extent of a problem. Mm. But where I've seen people firsthand with problems, I just felt um, affronted a little bit. I felt affronted. And, and, and I suppose one of my uh, 
natural gifts and downsides simultaneously is I don't really care what I say. So I just say what I think. And if it offends, it's like, I don't care. Actually, I say what I think. And and people, people work with me because they like to know the truth rather than, rather than have anything, you know, blow smoke. Do you think your leadership style has adapted? Because, you know, good leadership style is high challenge, high support. Do you think in the past you were possibly high challenge for the sake of being high challenge with low support? Um, I definitely wasn't low support. Um, I've always been high support and I've always led from the front, typically. Mm. On the businesses I've been hands-on, I've very much led from the front and I wouldn't expect people to do what I wasn't doing, hours of work or skills and so on. So, but have I been high challenge for high challenge sake? Yeah, I'm sure. And I look back at myself when I was 30 and I think I was a bit of an idiot, really. I, you know, I, I did some, did some good things in business, but, um, I suppose the res it's a result of a few things as a result of making quite a lot of money when I was young. Um, the result of having those skills innately. Um, but did they make me a bit too outspoken and a bit arrogant and a bit disagreeable? Yeah. Unnecessarily. So I would think, so I quite might cringe now when I sometimes think about some of the debates, stroke arguments, stroke leadership issues I might have got into in the early years and I would have defended it with we got it done yeah. you know we got it done we climbed that mountain and that's okay because I can shout at everyone if I want to um whereas now I wouldn't see it like that at all no. um but again it's it's stages of life and it's wisdom and everything else. and I suppose there is one thing I suppose now I've got a much greater ironically because I don't have my own staff because I work with other teams but um, ironically, I've got a much greater empathy for duty of care for staff and their careers and growing them. Whereas in the past, it was really just about the fact we're all getting up this mountain together. If, yeah. you know, if a couple of people die on the mountain, well, you know, as long as most of us get up, uh, you know, there was much more of a, yeah. it was just a results only focus, which probably, again, it's partly youth, uh, partly inexperience and, and partly just overzealous focus mm. like an athlete. Again, like an athlete, if you think about the way athletes train and they give up their whole life to do one thing and I think that's what I did in the early stages I gave up everything to do one thing and it makes you it makes you it creates the potential for achieving great things but it also makes you really imbalanced um and um you know maybe not not that pleasant sometimes (laughs) that's a very honest response Lyndon so as we wrap up this conversation I'm going to ask you one final question I think we've touched on it quite a lot through the course of um this discussion and that's what's your definition of success oh that is an interesting one um well i think it's certainly different for different people um without a doubt um i think uh it's dependent on stages of life um and so you know my definition of success from where i'm at now i would say is balance and a level of contentedness with the journey uh, it's not happiness. I, I quite passionately believe that if you pursue happiness, you're pursuing something that's innately ephemeral and you can't pursue the peaks without the troughs because they go together. Mm. And therefore, the the greater the happiness you pursue, the greater the troughs that you'll be trying to avoid and in itself creating imbalance and anxiety and so on. So I think... Um, there's way too much content today these days on people pushing happiness and chasing happiness, like chasing wealth. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think there's plenty of studies done that have uh, now recognized there's a certain amount of money that people need to feel secure. And beyond that, happiness doesn't go up. Um, 
Therefore, it's not about wealth. I mean, ego pursues wealth and, and greed and the need to, you know, the need to uh, effectively demonstrate your capabilities to others, which is really fighting your insecurities. And so um, I wouldn't say it's about happiness, but what I would say is, you know, what's really important um, as you get older, I think what becomes really important changes as you become a parent that obviously changes everything yeah. um, or a grandparent and so on. Um, I think everyone would agree on your deathbed. Uh, no one looks back and said, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Yeah. Um, so what do I think? I think the, the, for me, there's the from what I've learned over the time, I would say it's the ability to let go of control. It's the ability to recognize control is an illusion. And actually, I think if you remember that Baz Luhrmann song, Sunscreen, it was like, you know, a real problem hits you at 4 p.m. on an idle Tuesday afternoon. Uh, and I think that's very true. Um, and so the ability to, to to let go of the idea that you can control, acceptance of what is, and enjoying the now. And that sounds a little bit mumbo jumbo, as I say it, because I'm really not that person. I'm, you know, I'm not hippie and so on. I'm fairly pragmatic and yeah. I'm fairly focused. But what I would say is there's definitely a level of the calmness that comes with recognizing that now is all you've got. And recognizing and enjoying now, enjoying my kids, enjoying the fact it's a sunny day today, um, not letting the problem of something I've got that's got to happen next week, not letting that control me right now. That doesn't mean I don't have to do things to address that problem. It doesn't mean I don't have to turn up with a level of preparation, but it means I'm not going to let things worry me. And therefore, I'm not going to reflect or project as a standard modus operandi. What I'm going to try and do is recognize when I'm doing that and then the antidote being, no, no, how about now? How about be here right now? How about experience? Um, and I think pursuing experience and in, in being content with your journey and recognizing the highs and the lows are all part of that journey, recognizing you can't have the light without the dark. Um, I think uh, that is closer to success than maybe in the past. And, you know, and what am I focused on right now? I'd say right now, you know, what does success look like? It's really about happy family, you know, happy kids, you know, getting them off to university and, yeah. and, and seeing them content in one way, shape or form. That would be, um, you know, a short term definition. Beyond that, I've no idea because uh, I'm sure if you ask me the same question in 10 years time, I think my definition of success might have moved with the times and with my wisdom well, I'll, I'll come back for episode 665 the evolved to succeed podcast exactly and ask you that question i'm glad London. you didn't say episode 666 otherwise <laughs> i thought maybe you'd be trying to that's the old you Linda. yeah, yeah that's, that's right <laughs> Lyndon, it's been great to have you on the evolved to succeed podcast thank you for being so open honest pragmatic in the advice that you've shared it's been yeah wonderful to have you as a guest pleasure to be on thanks What a pleasure that was to have a conversation with someone with such vast experience across a number of sectors across three decades. You can tell from the way Lyndon answered my questions that he spent a lot of time thinking and reflecting about the nature of work and business, as well as the meaning behind doing what we do. Too often we're so wrapped up in the day-to-day -day running of our businesses that we can forget to take a moment and ask ourselves what we're doing and why and for whom. Maybe there's a part of us that's afraid sometimes to ask those questions. But I think it's really important, whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur and business owner, or someone who's just beginning their journey, to take some time to really examine your reasons for setting out on your own, and to have as clear a vision as possible as to where you want to go, 
why you want to go there and who you want to come with on that journey with you. And in that same vein, I have to say I really admired Lyndon's honesty when talking about the period he went through where he was left questioning what the point of it all was. Not only was it refreshing to hear someone of his stature admit to feeling something all of us have probably felt at some point in our journeys, but it was also enlightening to hear how he turned what can sometimes be a negative emotion into something that drove him to discover his true purpose and get himself back on track. Thank you, Lyndon, for being so honest with us during the course of that discussion and offering such valuable advice along the way. I really do hope you've enjoyed that episode of the Evolve to Succeed podcast. And if so, why not go to evolvemembers.com and find out more about Evolve. There, you'll learn more about the services that we offer, including our peer groups, coaching, training and development for teams, as well as our lovely co-working space, National Cross Import. You can also register on the website to receive our weekly insights, articles and newsletters. If you have enjoyed that episode, why not help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing to future episodes. But for now, thank you for listening.